Now I'd like to introduce tonight's interviewer, Dinah Lenny. Dinah Lenny is the author of Bigger Than Life, a murder, a memoir. She is a core faculty member at the Master of Professional Writing program at USC, in the Rainier Writing Workshop at Pacific Lutheran University, and in the Bennington Writing Seminars. A frequent contributor to the Los Angeles Times book pages, Ms. Lenny's essays appear in the Kenyon Review Online, Defunct, and Brevity. She is also a working actor who played Nurse Shirley on ER for 15 years. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Dinah Lenny. Thank you. Thanks. That was a, such a lovely introduction. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. How nice to see you. I'm going to quote to you. Uh, this is Nabokov. I get to quote Nabokov. Never mind that I stumbled on this quote on Facebook. Um, it's, it's from an essay called Good Readers and Good Writers. Nabokov said, everything that is worthwhile is to some extent subjective. I bring this up because it has everything to do with Megan Daum and her her gifts and her current responsibilities. Um, some of you maybe know that Megan writes a regular column for the LA Times. She's, you can read her every Thursday. Please. Uh, imagine, if you will, writing an essay once a week for five years. I, I can't do the math, but um, it, it's astonishing. How not to be subjective? Subjectivity is, is part of what we're looking for. It's, it's from the specific to the universal, right? That's how it works every time. And besides which, who are we kidding? In this culture, we really like to eavesdrop on people's lives. So, um, alongside this exquisite subjectivity, I think what makes Megan especially special is that it, as, it, it, because of this, alongside of this, as opposed to in spite of it, she always manage, manages to speak to larger issues, to the stuff that matters to all of us. So how does she do this? Well, let me start by saying that she's very smart and very funny. But she's also the author of three books. So let's talk about those for a second. My Misspent Youth is a collection of essays. The Quality of Life Report is a critically acclaimed novel. And we're here tonight to celebrate the publication of her memoir, Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House. So, about this balance that she's managed to achieve. Well, you consider the titles of these three books and you have a sense of the author. My Misspent Youth is self-deprecating, therefore lovable. The Quality of Life Report speaks to the depth of her preoccupations. And finally, the new book, Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House, never without hope, never sanctimonious, Megan, as a keen observer of the culture at large, turns the lens on us all, but she, does it, she turns the lens on herself first every time. A little background. She grew up in New Jersey. She may or may not want to talk about that. You ask her at your own peril. <laughs> she went to Vassar. She earned her MFA at Columbia. She's written for all kinds of publications. Harper's, The New Yorker, Vogue, The New York Book Times Book Review, Salon. Um, her husband, Alan, is here, sitting here somewhere. Alan, where are you? Ah, there you are. Um, Alan, I think, says it best. Um, he himself is a, is a Los Angeles at the, at the, at journalist at the Los Angeles Times and a fine, fine writer. And Alan says, with no small amount of admiration and pride and just a little bit of frustration, Megan is a natural. 
So it's not that she doesn't work very hard at what she does, but you don't see the work. That's the thing. Her prose is so seamless and so tight and so generous. Not, it's not just about considerable honesty, which she has, and vulnerability, but Megan trusts the reader to get it. She makes us feel that we are also smart and also funny. So tonight, she's going to read from the new book, and then she and I will talk a little bit, and then I'll open up the conversation to all of you so that you can ask questions. It is my great privilege and delight to introduce Megan Dumb. I would get up, but it would be odd. Can you just keep talking? Yeah, you know. uh, I could listen to that all day. Thank you. I'm I'm feeling very unnatural. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming. There's a lot of you here. And you came out on a Friday night, so... I'm sorry that you have no life, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm going to read not tremendously long because I think it's more interesting to, to talk than to just have somebody sort of read for, um, you know, more than is necessary, longer than is necessary. But as you may or may not know, this is a, a book about me. I know that's surprising. I finally try to take on a new subject seen through the prism of, of housing and real estate. Uh, and the book covers many uh, regions and many different times of my life, um, but the kind of the centerpiece of it has to do with buying a house here in Los Angeles by myself in 2004. So right as the <clears throat> real estate bubble was kind of expanding to the point where it would, it would burst. I'm going to read a little bit from that section, and I really I think all you need to know is that I, I'm 34 in this section, and I have just, uh, just uh, decided to buy a house in Echo Park. So there I was in the escrow office, signing my name on about 300 pieces of paper. About half the time, the printed name next to the signature line was simply Megan Daum. The other half of the time, it was Megan Daum, an unmarried woman. I can only assume this terminology arose out of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which made it illegal for home sellers and lenders to discriminate based on gender. Before that, any woman signing escrow papers was presumed to be doing so with her husband. Even then, several real estate brokers have told me women often had to get a pill letter from her doctor verifying that she was on birth control and therefore wouldn't get pregnant, quit her job, and lose the income on which the granting of the loan was based. Recognizing my good fortune in not having to provide a letter saying that I hadn't had sex in several months (laughs) and wasn't planning to until the house was refurbished and decorated to my exact specifications, which might take years, I signed the documents. It took about 45 minutes. I remember that it was very hot outside. It was July 8th, a Thursday, 3 p.m., and the air conditioner was on full blast in the office, and the perspiration I'd brought in from the street was now beating on my arms and forehead. My hand was shaking, and I can still see the pictures on the escrow officer's desk, wedding portraits and birthday party photos, and a gauzy silhouette from a little girl's first communion. I remember signing the first document and turning to my my left as though there were someone sitting next to me, which of course there wasn't. For a moment, I wondered if I was dreaming the whole event. I just made the biggest commitment of my life in the presence of no one but a woman named Irene Diaz. Was that her name exactly? I can no longer remember, 
though I'm pretty sure I could recognize those desk photos even today. I just signed away more money, and for all intents and purposes, taken the solemnest vow I'd ever uttered with a complete stranger as my sole witness. I needed to phone a friend immediately. I needed the kind of companion to whom you can talk nonsensically, repeat yourself ad nauseum, list the reasons you might have just made a huge mistake, and receive back a corresponding list of reasons that you did the right thing. My best friend Allison would have qualified, but she lived on the west side and rarely made the trip east without at least a week's notice. <laughs> My friend Karina was out of town. No one else sprang immediately to mind. Taking the new house keys in my sweating palm, I jumped in the car, swung by my old house, and grabbed the portable stereo from the counter and a bottle of wine from the fridge, a glass, and a corkscrew, always thinking ahead. I put Rex, my dog, that's my dog Rex, I put Rex in the car and drove to the house on Escalada Terrace. If I couldn't be in a dim lounge, eating tapas and clinking glasses with a reassuring friend, the very least I could do was go to the house and just sit there, taking it in, receiving the vibrations of my momentous, possibly idiotic decision. If I couldn't drink to it, at least I'd drink in it. <laughs> the sold sign, hanging from a wooden post jammed into the ground like a stern teacher's note, see me, let's discuss, needs improvement, was the only hint of life on the property. Blank and forlorn from months of non-occupancy, its window box bereft of flowers, its mail slot jammed with dozens of flyers in English and in Spanish, advertising lawn care service or pizza delivery or salvation through the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, the house was an anemic body crying out for nourishment, a withered plant for whom even a single drop of water might make all the difference. Once I was inside, the carpet hit me like a wave. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are loyal, I know. Without taking a step further into the house, I tore off a corner and began pulling it up. I did this as if my life depended upon finding an intact wood floor underneath. I didn't care what kind of condition the wood was in, just that it was there, and that you could walk on it without falling into the extremely scary crawl space beneath the house. I did this until I'd ripped such a large swath from the tacks, and the wood was decent, if splintered and scarred, that the carpet was bunched up in the center of the room, like jeans thrown on the floor. Deeming it too heavy to move, I opened the wine. It was now 7 p.m., an acceptable cocktail hour, poured it into the glass, plugged the stereo in, and called Rex to come sit on the pile of carpet with me. Having forgotten to bring a CD, I realized that the stereo still had a Cat Stevens' greatest hits cassette in the tape deck, <laughs> which had probably been there since college. The song that came on, naturally, was Wild World, official anthem of all striking out on their own girls everywhere. By the time it got to hard-headed woman, I was already on my third glass of wine and weepily singing along to the lyrics. <laughs> and if I find my hard-headed woman, I know the rest of my life will be blessed. Yes, yes, yes. While burying my face in Rex's fur. In other words, I had arrived... Whereas other single 34-year-old females were getting drunk and crying in rental apartments <laughs> with the requisite wicker furniture, Moroccan-style pillows, and pear-scented candles from Pier 1 Imports, I had the dignity, privilege, and let's face it, cojones to do so in my own house. 
Moreover, once moved in, I would have not wicker furniture, but actual antiques. I would have not scented candles, but regular candles that went in pewter holders. And even though I'd been caught red-handed with a Cat Stevens tape, I felt that my preference for hard-headed woman and not the simpering, treacly moon shadow exempted me from cliché. The evening did not end on that pile of carpet. The sun was now setting over the hills in the west. Sprinklers were sputtering to life as the air cooled. The macabre melody of an ice cream truck was fading into the distance. I was two sheets to the wind, though not yet three, and I decided to go for a walk. The best feature of this house was its location, and as I sat in the dark living room that now smelled like carpet glue, I felt I needed to remind myself of that. Not only was the neighborhood lush and bohemian, and as imbued with quiet families as it was animated by occasional gun violence, the street itself was an oasis. Across the road, and maybe 30 steps up from the house, was a wide 10-acre slope, an expanse of grasslands upon which, wondrously, no houses had been built. A path had been cleared through the field, and as I approached, my fourth glass of wine in one hand, <laughs> the dog leash in the other, though Rex, for his part, had already ambled off into the distance, I began to experience that particular form of exuberant abandon that comes from walking around drunk in the darkness. <laughs> it was a feeling I remembered from New York, when instead of hailing a cab or taking the subway, I'd often walk 30 or 40 blocks home at 1 a.m., in the aftertaste of the evening, in the sallow, non-darkness of the city night, I'd walk until my feet bloomed with blisters. Passing the panhandlers and the bar crawlers, the bundled-up bus waiters and the uniformed doormen, the lit-up all-night grocery marts and the locked and gated everything else, I could feel the city grazing my cheeks as though a thousand acquaintances were air-kissing me at a party. My mood on these walks was always tainted with either vague disappointments or cautious, potentially foolish hope. Maybe I'd have met someone who seemed in possession of some inkling of romantic or sexual possibility, but more often not. Maybe I'd have plunged into deep, revelatory conversation with someone fascinating, but more likely not. Still, in the brisk, odorous clutches of the avenues and streets, such things mattered less than the physical fact of the city, and my ongoing amazement that I'd actually managed to carve out a tiny nook for myself in Manhattan, however dank and costly, and echoing with the laughter of richer, happier neighbors. Despite my hometown of Ridgewood being only 20 miles from Manhattan, the distance between the two places, I'd said it so many times, yet somehow it was never enough, had seemed like an ocean. And had I now crossed another ocean? Was the journey to California equal to or greater than the journey out of Ridgewood, away from Vassar, out of my parents' unending flight from their own pasts? No, not really, not at all. Sipping my wine, whistling for Rex, I stepped onto the path, where static of all varieties, the scratchy warbles of the first crickets, crickets the rustle of the dog in the grass, the din of distant car alarms and police helicopters and those mysterious pops that are either firecrackers or gunshots, <laughs> put a hot surge into the fading summer day. Climbing the hill, I experienced a brief moment of another time, another hometown of mine, Nebraska. For a few seconds, there was nothing before me but grass and sky. I had to catch my breath. I had to bite the inside of my cheek to test for awakeness. 
One step more, though, and the prairie effect was gone. Rising into view from the crest of the hill were the San Gabriel Mountains to the north, the Hollywood Hills to the west, and the low-slung skyline of Mid-Wilshire to the south-southwest. I sat down on a rock. I called Rex next to me and held him close as though he were a teenage boy who let me wear his letterman jacket. In the fading light, I spotted the Hollywood sign, surreal and cheesy and sublime. Closer in, I saw the undulating roller coaster streets of the neighborhood, the haphazard terraces and retaining walls of the properties, and my own little house, square and flat roofed, and from certain angles, seemingly befitting of an elf nestled in its place on my little road. I saw all this, and it was once a place I'd never been, and a place I'd been all my life. I remember once at college having a dream where I was sitting on a log or a rock or some kind of beach, staring into blankness, a viewless view. Having suddenly found myself holding a postcard depicting some breathtaking yet nonspecific Arcadian scene, I held it out in front of me, only to have it fuse with my real-life surroundings. It was as if art had been liberated into three-dimensional life, as if some divine force had commanded the worldly and the unworldly to become one. In an instant, by virtue of a single image I'd held in my fingers, I'd made real life join hands with idealized life. So what it means, I told a friend the next day, is that my reality answers to my fantasies. I mean, I totally got the feeling from this dream that my life is going to turn out exactly the way I want it. It's like it was saying to me, if you picture it, you can get it. It was like this incredible peace came over me. I could see the road ahead, and it was everything I want. To which my friend, who was one of those guys who always accuses others of needing to plan everything out and wanting to settle down rather to have adventures, said, if that's what you want, fine. I guess I'd rather just see where life takes me. <laughs> this guy, having once asked me what I wanted from life, no doubt while sitting on his Indian rug listening to Yaz, <laughs> declared my answer of contentment to be, in his mind, a pity and a waste, and not at all what he would want, which apparently was a life of, quote, passion, excitement, and a rich, fully realized moments that would add up to authentic happiness. One of the many tragedies of college life is that it's almost developmentally impossible to have the wisdom to understand that contentment, which implies some sort of sustenance over time, can be an infinitely taller order than happiness, which is often inherently fleeting. It is also unfortunate that your average college student lacks the presence of mind to tell someone to fuck off when he spouts such bong-hit-fueled twaddle <laughs> about the meaning of passion. Anyway, I was drunk on the hill. I was not thinking about the conversation about contentment, or even the postcard dream. I wasn't thinking about much, since I'd now consumed almost an entire bottle of wine, and was instead watching Rex sliver through the grass like a jungle animal, a vision that made me slap happy until, minutes later, I was suddenly melancholy to the point of tears. It was my first day. These were my first hours as a homeowner, as an evolved human as a woman who lived not in a sublet or a condo with wicker and candles, but in a real house. And here I was, with a bank loan of $333,701 and an equity line of credit for $71,000, sitting inebriated in an overgrown field, trying to hold my imaginary postcard up to the vista before me and see if they fused. Was this the right stop on the road that would give me everything? Was there contentment to be found in these hills, on this street, in that house? 
Ah, yes, I said nearly out loud. This is it. I have it all. I have it all. I have it all. And I'll stop there. You've hit the airwaves this week. You've been giving people lots of advice about uh, real estate, actually. I keep listening to people call up and say, you know, I have a loan and I bought this house and it was my dream house. And, and you've been very polite and you've answered all these questions. Certainly this book is about buying a house, but you're an essayist and you generally sort of find a lens to look at something. What, what are you, what's this book about? This book is not, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a memoir. Why a memoir? Well, I have been nattering on about this subject for six or seven years now. I had to write something. I had to do something about this housing fixation. Anyone who knows me knows that before I bought this house and even after I bought it, I was just completely preoccupied with, with houses, with looking at them on the internet, with, with going to various sites, the MLS, whatever it is, and just clicking through the photos. It really, it feels like a, an addiction. It's, it's very much like pornography addiction, perhaps, in some ways. I mean, I don't know or anything, but I, I heard. And, and um, I, you know, it occurred to me that I was, I was really preoccupied in the house hunting phase, and then I ended up buying a house, and I became preoccupied with like fixing it and redecorating it and doing various things to it. And then, of course, after a few months, after I sort of ran out of money to do any more fixes, I went back to the real estate sites and started looking at other houses. And when I say I'm looking at them, I'm not talking just about houses in my neighborhood or that I would conceivably buy, but in other cities and states and countries. <laughs> and, um, and it really is just, there's something very, very soothing and very exciting about looking at pictures of, 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 of properties and, and homes and interior space especially. So I wanted to talk about that in a more general sense. I, I didn't set out to write a book about the housing bubble and, and foreclosures and all that because I'm not an expert in the business world and there are plenty of people who have written But did you books. suppose, in fact, that you would reveal... Did you surprise yourself? Did you reveal things in this book that you didn't end up... think that you would reveal? Are there things... I mean, I, what I'm sort of getting... You know what I'm getting at. I'm, I'm looking at the relationships you know, your family, your parents, your, yeah. that stuff. Um, yeah, the first chapter is very much about my family and growing up. I have parents who, uh, they're from the Midwest, and they uh, really, they, they were consumed with sort of um, pulling themselves up this, this kind of socioeconomic slash intellectual artistic ladder. And the way it was, uh, the, the main way that they channeled it, especially my mother, was through houses. She, she wanted to be, she was obsessed with academic life and sort of academic towns, but she didn't really want to be an academic. She wanted to be an academic wife and she wanted to have a certain kind of house with like oriental rugs and, uh, you know, framed uh, San Francisco symphony posters on the walls or in certain kinds of books that she not, not, didn't necessarily read and that sort of thing. So we were very much a family um, that, that kind of presented ourselves to the world through our, our houses. And we didn't have a lot of money, but we always had very nice looking houses because my mother was, was excellent at that. But to answer your question, um, I did not realize that it was a book, um, I'm not gonna say about my mother, but I, I didn't realize that my mother would play such a strong um, role, kind of undercurrent, you know, it, her, that her emotional undercurrent presence 
doesn't make any sense, would, um, would be as strong as it was until I, until I kind of finished, really, and had to redo and the ending. Discovered that. <laughs> and And yeah. talk about that, having to redo well, the ending. Well, not to, like, you know, not start to give this the off ending on a... Away. T- not to give the ending away, not to start off on a down note, but um, I had been thinking about this book for a long time, and, uh, and then when I started, my mother was actually diagnosed with cancer, um, when I was kind of finishing the book and spent the last year uh, with cancer and she ended up um, passing away a few months after I finished the book. And so it was an odd thing of um, having to write a new ending because a lot of things had happened in my life. I had kind of written up to, to the present in terms of ending the book. And um, a number of things happened. I ended up getting married and uh, I was, we were going to get married anyway. <laughs> um, but we sped up the wedding. The wedding became a very rushed affair because we wanted my mother to, to be there. So, so I ended up writing a whole new ending after it was in, and the thing was actually the, the book was actually in galleys and page proofs. And I ended up writing a new ending that that made the book it actually became totally cohesive for me at that point. And it was a book about about my mother. So, so what's interesting is that in this book, you, you're, you, we won't, we'll hardly mention New Jersey, but you start in New Jersey, and then you move to New York, and then you move to Nebraska, and then you come to the West right. Coast. We actually start in Texas. We start in Texas. She was, you were born in I Texas? I was born in California. You were born in California? I've read this book. Really, I have. Um, but, <laughs> but it's hard to keep this straight. I mean, she, she really has traversed a, 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 a wide terrain here. But in terms of your parents, the, the big deal was sort of New York. It was yeah. this kind of intelligentsia, this, this, this bohemian slash yeah. you know, life that you were aspiring to. In the end, it turns out for you, it's not necessarily about the geographic location so much as it is about the house wherever it is. But talk about how, why Nebraska? Oh, okay. Well, the... Right? Uh, when I was 29, okay, when I was, when I was 29, I moved from New York City to Nebraska. I moved to Lincoln, Nebraska. And um, the, the sort of overt kind of practical reason, the reason I gave when people asked me was that I was $78,000 in debt. Uh, and that was debt accrued from going to graduate school and taking out huge loans and also from just living in New York and trying to kind of... Um, enact this this life that I believed I deserved, which I saw as this kind of kind of shabby but cool, you know, creative life of a writer. And I wanted to have an apartment on the Upper West Side, and and a kind of life that I I know you're laughing like that's so hilarious. How could you think that? <laughs> but but uh, I but you know this the kind of trappings of a, of a life that I had perceived in my naivete to be a middle-class existence. I was not interested in being rich at all. I just wanted my own little apartment with the peeling paint on the, on the walls and the kind of worn Your oak floors and all that stuff. And, um, and the sort of quest to, to, to make that life happen, I, just, I was spending more than I was earning. And so, so I decided... Um, that I was going to have to find a way to save money. Now, obviously, one does not have to move to Lincoln, Nebraska when one is $78,000 in debt. There are other solutions. But um, <laughs> I, 
the, the kind of more visceral, more difficult to explain side of it was that I was just really captured by the, the prairie and the aesthetics of the prairie. I thought it was beautiful. I had been there, um, you know, I was working a lot as a magazine journalist and I had been there doing a story and just was really taken with the landscape. And I loved the houses that had great old housing stock. You know, I'm a big historical house fan. And um, it occurred to me that this was a really beautiful place to live with nice, interesting people that was affordable. So I, I kind of took this sharp left turn and uh, had this adventure. And, and it was did it great. liberate you from the upward mobility of the the New York thing? Where do, where do Nebraska, where does Los Angeles, actually I'd love to have you read something, but where do Nebraska and Los Angeles sit on the emotional map here? Well, here's the thing about New York. New Yorkers congratulate themselves for being so cosmopolitan. And in fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. You have such a diverse, and, and this is kind of true of Los Angeles, but not in a, this is a pretty specific New York phenomenon. You have so many people that you have this quote unquote luxury I don't know how you want to put it, of hanging around with people who are only exactly like you. They're reading the same books as you are. They're pursuing the same things. They're jealous of the same people. They have the same goals. They have the same, you know, fat-scented, you know, pear-scented candles in their <laughs> apartments. And it becomes a very provincial experience. And what I found, ironically enough, was when I moved to the provinces, quote-unquote, you are forced to, and I'm saying forced, it's, I mean, it was a, it's not a bad thing at all. You, you have this opportunity to kind of hang out with everybody in the town because there's no choice. There aren't that many people. So you actually have a much sort of richer and more involved and, and kind of eclectic life than you do. And so that was surprising to me. Will you, will you read a little bit to us? I, I'm, I'm looking at page 89 Sure. Uh, this, there's a there's a sort of a reflection about where Los Angeles. Oh yeah, so right. So I didn't really finish answering your question. So Los Angeles, to me, I have lived here. I moved here twice, so it's kind of hard to say how long I've I've lived here because I moved here, and then I decided that I wanted to buy a farm in Nebraska, so I went back and. I, but uh, I've lived here, you know, basically eight years, and. It feels like a very Midwestern city to me in certain ways. The things that I loved, it's kind of like the best combination of New York and Nebraska. The things that I loved about Nebraska are very often here. So I will now completely explain that. <laughs> um, so, oh, and I should just say, my, my friend Allison, uh, she moved here. She was a good friend of mine in New York, and she moved here several years before I did. And she was always trying to convince me to uh, to... She was always trying to convince me to move to uh, L.A., and one of, her, one of her arguments was that it's possible to go entire weeks here without, being ever, without ever being too chilly or too warm. She had a point. Los Angeles is nothing if not the geographical equivalent of baby bear's porridge. Not too cold, not too hot, but rather a study in the unsung pleasures of lukewarm... I won't lie, conspicuous intellectualism is not LA's racket. When Midwestern kids get on that proverbial Greyhound bus and head for one of the coasts the way my parents should have long ago, the brainy ones tend to go east, and the good-looking, not-so-brainy ones tend to go west. <laughs> tend. You see them strolling, mouths agape, down Hollywood Boulevard, or waitressing at Marie Callender's. 
blue-eyed high school quarterbacks who were told they should try modeling, but will be back home selling cars within six months. Corn-fed Iowa kids who were the stars of their school musicals, but just might end up in porn. <laughs> I'm generalizing, of course. There are a million exceptions. This is only half the story. L.A. has more than its share of art house pontificators, of pallid bibliophiles, of math types. It has major universities and major museums and quite a lot of independent bookstores. But it doesn't wear erudition on its sleeve. Unlike New York, it doesn't mind if you haven't read Thomas Mann. It values a nice backyard over the prospect of being neighbors with Thomas Pynchon. <laughs> Moreover, unlike San Francisco, it doesn't purport to be evolved. The people of LA are honest about themselves and their city. They know it's flawed. They know there's at least one asshole for every decent person. They don't waste their breath telling outsiders how great it is. If San Franciscans are evangelical about their city, always spreading the gospel of its goat cheese and its tolerance and the way the <laughs> fog descends upon its holy bridge in chiaroscuric rapture, Angelinos are Jewish about theirs. Either you're among the chosen or you're not. Either you get why it's good to live in L.A. or you don't. Yeah. So. Okay, so tell me this. You came from this family of sort of strivers, artists, art, your, your father. Musicians. Musicians, yeah. musicians. But you were trained as a musician. You were supposed to follow in the path this... In fact, Megan was an oboist, <laughs> so you know. Yeah. And I think re re recently wrote a column about... Yeah, I did. Yes. So um, t talk to us about how you made the segue to the writing and, and how, what the writing has to do with the music. Well, I'm, I, I'm really bad at everything else. I have no other skills. I was like, okay, as an oboist. Um, but a mediocre oboist does not go far uh, in this world. It's just a tough, it's a tough, tough world. Um, and I, I, you know, I just, I really kind of just took the path of least resistance. I was always a writer. I was obsessed with Little House on the Prairie when I was a kid. Surprisingly, and uh, I used to draw stories using the characters and make my mother write the word. I would tell her the words to write because I couldn't write yet. I would just draw like when I was two or three years old and, and make books. So um, I was just I was just always writing and making up stories. And and I, the music for me, um, I, I'm very attuned to sound when I write and to rhythm, almost to the point where I can kind of hear. The, the way the sentence goes before I even know what words are in the sentence or what it's about. I can kind of hear an essay or, or you know, a, a book to me almost feels more like, a, like an album, like a concept album. I mean, certainly a collection of essays does feel like a, like a concept album to be very 70s for a moment. But um, I, so, so definitely um, having... My father is like this brilliant sort of savant-like... Um, musician who's very, very rigid in his tastes and, and demands. And, um, but, but what he does do, he does extraordinarily well. So I think uh, I, I think I was just... I, I have some sort of aptitude for music that, that just has translated into 
and some writing somehow, which is heartbreaking because I would so much rather be a, a, a <laughs> like a girl with a guitar, you know. It's just. But in me. terms of this this business of a of a concept album and choosing the form for your various, I mean, you work in long form, you work in short form. This is a memoir. That was a collection of essays. When do you know, as you're shaping the work, what it's? When did you know this was a memoir and not essays? <laughs> well, you know, I I have been very bigoted about the word memoir for a long time. Um, I am an essayist, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a memoirist. Uh, and I finally had to just, just cop to the, to the genre and, and say, yeah, this is a memoir. I mean, I think that, I think that writing about oneself, it's tricky because when it's done badly, it's totally solipsistic and narcissistic and, and the, the bad reputation it has <clears throat> is utterly deserved. But I think when you try to strive to, to make it about something larger and just sort of use yourself as a narrator and a tool for talking about, about other things, um, then, it, then it can be less so. So I was just really, it seemed clear to me that I needed to write about the house thing and, and that, it, that, it was, that, that I had a story, but that even though the particulars of my story have to do with my own neuroses and proclivities, that it was really something that a lot of people felt. It felt to me like an idea. It felt to me like a cultural phenomenon, this, this, this fixation on house and home and, and the way we sort of use our houses as a container for our aspirations and our tastes and our ambitions and our anxieties. I mean, that was not something that was just happening to me. That mm -hmm. was happening in the world. And um, it just seemed to me the best way to talk about it was, was to tell my story. But I don't really see this book as, as just my story. I mean, I, I hope not. No, and I, and I think, you know, you've been talking, a, I, we've talked a lot about the idea that the house is somehow an extension of ego, that it's a way to present yourself to the world. Uh, I, I heard you say uh, on Talk of the Nation yesterday, um, this guy came on the air and, and he, he told you that he had, this man said, I have a house, I'm, I'm single. Uh, it, this was clearly a problem. He was sort of whining about this. And, and, um, and Megan said to him, um, there, she said, don't you worry. This is what I mean. It sort of turned into it. She's turned into an advice you know, radio advice person. She said, don't worry. She said, nothing is more attractive than a man with his own house. So I heard that. I don't know if I believe that. I, well, I was going to say, I really wanted to ask you, do you, okay, so do you believe that? So, uh, you know, Alan comes into the picture. What if he'd been a guy with his own house? I mean, would you have gone? It seems to me that there was a control element here of I, I'm the one with the house. And yeah. and yeah, so let's hear about that. Well, I guess I was impressed by this caller because um, <laughs> statistically, single women buy way more houses than single men. Single women are the largest group of home buyers after married couples. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, so I was just sort of trying to give this guy a give this guy a boost. <laughs> but um, so that was I, very yeah, kind. I mean, I, you know, I, I, for me, I'm very particular about what kind of furniture I want, what style of house I want. Um, there needs to be a certain integrity to the to the architecture or the structure. So um, yeah, if if I had met Alan and he had a fantastic house, um, well, if it was fantastic, that would be okay. But if he thought it was fantastic and he was wrong about that, then... <laughs> 
and in and in terms of the perfect house, I mean, part part of the situation is that you that, that there should be some imperfection so that you can put your stamp on it. Oh yeah, you so obviously tweak it. Yeah, you. So can. we know the first thing you are going to do is rip up carpeting if there's carpeting. We've established that. What 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 other room in this house? Where do you have to sort of go in there and mark your terrain? Well, for me, it was really just, I was so indecisive, you know, I, I painted, my house is very small, and um, I, I painted the wall, you know, like, I had a mint green living room for a while, because I thought this was a great idea, and then, and I had um, a bedroom that was supposed to be blue, but it didn't really, it ended up being a very bright blue, so after maybe six months with that, I painted the I painted the living room like a terracotta, and then I painted the bedroom mint green. So the mint green was sort of like migrating around the house. I mean, and the other thing is like, I'm a very, um, I'm like a very half-assed remodeler. Like I never had enough money to do anything um, sort of, sort of properly. So until recently, I've totally, I've totally fixed the house now, I just need to say. But, but you know, as I was living there, um, I would just do things like, I tried to make the, the, um, the kitchen at one point, I became really stuck on this image I had seen in a clothing catalog. And it was like, it's a, it's a, it's a catalog called Soft Surroundings, which it caters to, it has a lot of like flowing tunics. And it's for like the female Unitarian minister. That, that who would, would order clothes from this, this catalog. And, and I actually was ordering some clothes from there for a while. And, and um, there was this one image of this woman standing in a kitchen, and the kitchen was, it was blurry in the background. I mean, she was showing off like a skirt and a top, and, but the kitchen, it had these wood floors, and it had this like, this, this kind of rustic barn wood on the cabinets, and I said, oh my gosh, I want that kitchen, that's great, and I, and I took the catalog, and I gave it to a guy I know who is a neighbor of mine who um, does beautiful work, but he specializes in making new things look old. He like, you know, he's like the, the shab- he really capitalized on the shabby chic movement. Like you can take a perfectly nice kitchen and like start hacking at it. So it just looks like, you know, a tornado went through it. So, so he did my, he put milk paint on my cabinets and they looked really great, but they were like really rusticy and barn, you know, barn-like. And you know, I paid quite a bit of, of good money to, to sort of make my, kitchen looked like the blurry background in a soft surroundings catalog. So that's the kind of, you know, they, they don't make like remodeling shows based on my decisions. It's not, yeah. So that's the kind of thing I would do. And, yeah. and, 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 and redo and redo and redo. Redo and then decide it, you know, should be another way. But, but again, like this is one of the pleasures of living in a house by yourself because nobody's judging you. You're not accountable for... These, this spending of money and this kind of activity. I mean, a lot of this can be done very cheaply. I mean, I, the best night I had in my house, um, I'd been there a few months, and I re- the, the bathroom floor, it was like this really ugly tile that was over the, you know, that, that was the floor. And I noticed that just peeking out of the corner was a little piece of the original porcelain hexagonal tile. You know, this is a house from the 20s. So, you know, that old, that, that great, you know, the, 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 the porcelain tile. And I said, oh my gosh, the original tile is underneath there. And it was like 11 o'clock at night or something, and I didn't have any tools. But I spent 
the next six hours prying up the tile, the ugly, you know, vinyl tile with a butter knife. I mean, I was on my knees, my hands were bleeding. I had to get that stuff, uh, there was just glue. The whole bathroom was glue. It was like a glue trap for a human being, you know? So I got all the tile off and the dog would like walk, you know, get stuck on it. You know, it was terrible. But it was so, it, I, I think that was the moment where the house became my house because I, I pried up this this ugly tile, you know, with my own blood and sweat, and all the original porcelain tile was intact underneath it. It was like the like, house was on your it side. It was like it's. I had I had excavated its most, you know, precious bones or something, and it was. That's wonderful. It was. That's wonderful. It, was, it really. Yeah. It, life would be perfect if you lived in that house. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but it yeah. didn't really. I'm still waiting. I know? I know. I yeah. know. So I, I think it's time for me to open this oh. up to the to the audience. That um, questions. Uh, my name is Todd Kerner, and I was curious, Megan, what your opinion was about how the housing aspect of the recession has changed or will change our perception of the recession, since it seems to be more than ever before driven by uh, sites of people who are losing their homes and what that means to the sort of national mentality of the recession. So you mean you're feeling like the recession has a, has a sort of house feeling around it? it became, it's sort of the salient image of this, of this recession is the house? Like, yeah. the, like the soup lines in the, during the Depression? Exactly. Of, I think right. that the foreclosure signs are what will become sort of the signpost of yeah. the recession. You know, I think it's interesting, but I, but I also think that, that a lot of the, the discussion around foreclosure, it, it comes from, people, people just point fingers and say, well, you're greedy, we're an acquisitional culture, and people are stupid and they deserve it. And believe me, in a lot of ways, that's very true. I mean, I, I don't like the fact that I got a normal mortgage and I make my payment every month, and apparently one doesn't necessarily need to. But... But uh, <laughs> I think that really it's, it's, it's deeper than that. I think the, the urge to get a house and to kind of make your house a reflection of you, it transcends the, the, financial, the financial element. I, I do think you're right that we will probably think of this recession in terms of the housing crisis, but I don't think it's going to stop people's interest in houses. I, don't, I think it, they may not necessarily want a McMansion, but... And by the way, I'm not talking solely about buying a house. Renting a, an apartment can be really fun, too. I mean, it's like dating someone that you know you're not going to marry, but, but it's fun for now. Like, that's renting. I mean, that, there's a lot to be said for that. So, so I think even if people kind of realize that they should have bought houses or that, that renting can be a good thing, it doesn't change the fact that there's something so so just intense and, and exhilarating about creating a space around you. Like, it's like you're literally projecting your, yourself on those, on those blank walls. Like when you were looking for homes, you were looking for something like an extension of yourself. Do you think the obsession is different today or is looking for homes? Well, I think that what's happened is the internet has enabled the, uh, the addiction element of the search. I mean, it used to be that you would if you were looking for a house, you get a real estate agent and they take you and they drive you around and there's kind of a limited number of places that you're looking at. I mean, even, you know, my mother would go to, uh, to open houses as a recreational activity. I mean, that was like her idea of fun. And um, it was fun, but 
as time went on, when, when it became something that you could look at on the internet, and you're not only looking at houses in your neighborhood, you're looking at houses all over the place and imagining what your life would be like in this other place. And, and the house becomes the vehicle for imagining this whole other life. So, so yeah, to answer your question, I think that, that it's, it's, it's changed a lot for the better and the worse, you know. And my name is Allison, and I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, my question has to do with any of the background research you did while writing this book. Um, I think the description for tonight mentioned Fair Housing Act or other cultural aspects that would answer the question, why are we so obsessed? So what kind of research did you do and what did you learn that would answer that question based on, you know, why does our society foster this desire? Well, the, the research that I did, this is not, this is not like a, a research book with footnotes and, and notes and that kind of stuff. I did um, do a fair amount of reporting for some other, some, for some journalism that's not really in this book about women and foreclosure particularly, because I was interested in this statistic that more women were buying houses on their own and then sort of what happens when they get, uh, they get, then they get foreclosed on. So, uh, you know, I, I was interested to sort of hear about the history of, of, of women buying houses and the whole thing with the pill letter, like having to get a letter proving that you were on birth control pills. That was, that was pretty amazing. But, you know, again, I just, the, this, the answer to why we're so obsessed, it's not quantifiable. It's nothing that can be answered with data. It's just, um, I, think it's, I think it's human nature. I don't think it has to do with... The housing bubble, obviously, the things got crazy and, and mortgages were the way they were and it became part of the national conversation and, and this, the interest around it went up. But I think on some fundamental level, it's always been there. I think people, you know, in, in early man was, were obsessed with the life would be perfect if I lived in that cave, you know? I, it would, I, I, I really, I think this is probably just something that is very intrinsic. I share a lot of uh, your similar sentiments because I bought my house around the same time, December 2003. Part of the reason I bought at that time was I almost felt like I was being forced to buy it because of the rising prices. As if you don't buy it, you know, you just, with the runaway you know, increase, you just would never buy it. Right. So how much of your purchase decision was based upon that fear? Yeah, I, I had, um, I, I, I had a, a limited amount of money. I had a set amount of money. And, you know, by the way, I was a freelance writer, uh, I was not somebody who, once upon a time, would probably have been the best candidate for a mortgage. But I, um, I, I did have some, uh, you know, certain amount of money to play with. And yeah, it was exactly as you're describing. I was convinced I was about two weeks away from being priced out of the market. It was just going up and up and up. And um, I, I went around with my real estate agent and. Um, he was a hilarious, great guy, and we had a lot of fun, and we just looked at things that, like, the Unabomber was still living in, and, it, and they won, and it went into multiple offers, and, like, went for, I mean, it was, it was like, totally insane. So, um, yeah, it's very much, it was like a scarcity complex, so I, I absolutely relate to that. Is, how did you uh, incorporate your husband? into all the work you were doing on your house. Well, I will refer you. See, I and I promise not six. to ask that. He, I actually got him, I, 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 when I, on our first date, I made him go look at, uh, I made him go to an architectural salvage store. Uh, we had brunch, and uh, 
and I made him go to an architectural salvage store because I had become preoccupied with getting new, uh, new drawer pulls. So this was during the soft surroundings catalog kitchen makeover phase. <laughs> and um, yeah, he really, I think he was kind of amused and you know, we would go to open houses. He'd say, oh, you know, he'd be like, oh, you want to go for a hike today? And I'd say, no, you know, no, there's open houses. Like, well, no, why, why would we do that? So, um, I, so the, yeah, but you know, he did eventually, you know, we, he, he eventually moved in, and um, it was hard. It was like to, the, the combining of two households is a difficult thing, and I think um, I, I think that it's it's uh, something that needs to be taken seriously, and, and you need to give yourself sort of room around it to kind of have freakouts and get upset and adjust and, and kind of find a way in. And, and you know, it's 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 a small house, and we are dealing with it <laughs> in uh we're actually selling the house so <laughs> and uh more on that later i suppose <laughs> question why do you think um women are, single women are more likely to buy a house than a single man what's the what's the uh, root of that somebody told me that single men are actually more likely to live with their parents than buy a house but i'm not sure that i'm not sure how true that statistic is I think that I, I think that women um, want to have a sort of investment in their independence in a way that maybe men don't. And I don't want to go down a really sort of obvious reductive, like you know, f- feminist path on this because I think that th- that line of thinking can get sort of over oversimplified. But all I can say is, in my, in my case. I had moved around a lot. I mean, a lot of what this book is about is about moving. Buying, but the buying of the house is really only a small part of this book. It's about this kind of restlessness and this trying to find um, a place that felt like, like home. And I guess um, I really wanted to have a house before I had a husband, in a way. I wanted to have the experience of having my own house and something that... that sort of couldn't be taken away or that could be really my own thing before I would have to share. It was kind of, maybe women just don't want to share or something. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting question. But by the way, there are a lot of men who have their own houses. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to overgeneralize, but that, there is that statistic. So, so I think it's clear um, some of the reasons why um, you bought your first property, but I wanted to ask you um, if you could expand on whether you think the process of buying a house reflects on settling down and what other reasons would drive you to buy other properties and would you do it for investment? <laughs> you know, it's the, the settle, settling is a really loaded word. I mean, you can settle, it, it can be negative, it can be positive. Like if, if the settling down, meaning that you're settling, like as if it's less, that sort of thing. Um, it's, I, I don't, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I think that, that is, that's what sort of moved me to write the book in this particular way, is that I, it's really like a vortex of, of impulses and emotions. And, and what is it that makes us glom onto a certain house or the idea of having a house? I mean, I think for me, I felt that the house would be um, kind of freedom somehow. For me, it was very much also about proving myself to be an adult. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I didn't have like a lot of the trappings of an adult. I didn't have kids. I didn't, 
you know, have a job. <laughs> so, you know, I, I lived, you know, I was, I had, you know, I had been very fortunate in my career and was able to do okay, but, but the sort of nature of it was that I was like, you know, I didn't have like work clothes that made me feel like, you know, a person going to, who, who was a grown-up. So, so for me, it was kind of a, a way of, of feeling like an adult more than anything. The reason I'm asking is because you've traveled all around and I'm just wondering if having a house um, makes you feel more like that responsibility of staying, you know, where your house is or do you feel like it's the opposite? Like now you have the freedom to actually travel more because you don't have to worry about, you know, where's your actual Home. I think um, I think having a house actually made me feel more liberated. I know other people don't have that experience, but um, you know you can rent it out, you can sell it, you can burn it down and collect the insurance. <laughs> there there are all sorts of things you can do, and I and I think that people have this idea like, oh, I'm going to be trapped, I'm going to be trapped, I'm going to be locked in, and and it's 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 really not true. There's also this great you know you can do these house swaps where uh, you can trade and somebody can stay in your house in Los Angeles and you can go stay in their house in Paris. And this is a great way to look at things, I think. It's a, it's a, it's a vehicle for vacation as well as <laughs> non-vacation. Hi, right. my name is Chuck Marquardt. And first of all, I want to say what a, what a charming conversationalist you are. Thank you. Um, so writing and doing the essays is, is oftentimes very therapeutic and, and it's kind of a, a form of therapy and all the journaling that you've done in these essays and for a lot of people it is such and I'm wondering after writing all of these essays and putting this all together and and thinking about about your experience with with looking for homes and owning a home and renovating and tearing them up and hopefully not burning them down how is this affecting your looking for a home now <laughs> what lesson did you learn and how is that actually affected the way that you're going to be going forward. I, I'm just afraid that people are going to see me coming, you know. <laughs> the, uh, the, no one's going to want to sell me a house because I'm going to, like, be such a freak around it or something. Paint it mint uh, green. Are we gonna be, <laughs> I know you're going to turn this house into a soft surroundings catalog, so I'm not <laughs> going to sell it to you. I don't know. I'm pretty... I, I, I really... I haven't really changed. I mean, I, 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 I know that that's what you're supposed to say, like, oh, I've, I've come out the other side and I, I'm going to be calm about this, but I am a person who loves houses and I'm always going to be. And so looking for a house to me is actually an incredible amount of fun. It's frustrating when you don't find something that you like and it's, and it's you know, it can be disappointing if you do like something that doesn't work out, but... Um, no, I, I, I just think that this is kind of, this is it for me. I'm always going to be looking at these things. And I think the key is just to kind of take pleasure in it. Don't sort of pathologize the, the obsession. I mean, I know that we like to talk about things in terms of, of addiction and obsession, and I do use that word in the book, but it's also just such a, such a tremendous pleasure. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm just... The hunt, the hunt will go on. Thank you, Dinah and Thank Megan. You. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.